as those of you know who have just who've been here for a bit, we uh, this is our first time to do this whole stand thing. So we're we're figuring that one out. I'm trying to move away from the podium. Yesterday, Robin, or last week rather, I guess halfway through the week, she waited a few days after my sermon. But she's always great with sermon comments. But she's like, you know, your best preaching is when you're like out from behind the podium, which is like three percent of the time. So. Um, it was nicely said, a bit brutal, but she's, I think she's probably right. So we're going to try just this. Um, I feel a bit naked, like you guys can see my legs for the first time. Get one more thing. Man, it's been rich so far. I could just sort of not preach. It would be a wonderful, a wonderful gathering. Um, I, have to, I have to say, though, one thing on the Advent wreath, uh, Nathaniel mentioned my favorite movie, Chariots of Fire, and one of his two. I just have to say, uh, it wasn't Cambridge that he ran for. It was University of Edinburgh, my alma mater. So we got to get that straight. But other than that, everything was, was perfect. Um, okay. Well, let's jump right in. I want to talk a little bit about the world that Jesus chose to be born into. Uh, we, none of us, unless I'm missing something, chose to be born but Jesus did. None of us chose the circumstances of our birth, but Jesus, Jesus did. So I want to focus on that today, among other things. Um, that song, Silent Night, that we sang earlier, I really love it. It's a wonderful song, full of peace. But if we think that that's the tone of things, that peaceful tranquility that Jesus was born into and that he chose to be born into, we're wrong. It's not at all the case. I want to talk to you a little bit about Herod, the king that we've just read about, um, Ken Bailey, whom I've mentioned before, writes that Herod was a brilliant, he was brilliant, he was called Herod the Great for a reason. He was brilliant, but he was also brutal. In all, he married ten women, so even worse than Henry VIII. Uh, the sons for him were often seen as potential political rivals, not you know, nephews or people outside of his family, his own sons. And two of his favorites, mind you, he strangled, he had strangled, rather, um, by ordering his fort in Samaria. Later, he became suspicious of the political loyalties of his favorite, again, favorite sons had him strangled, of his favorite wife, uh, Mary Amney, and he had her killed. I just, I just can't help but pause and say here, what must he, how must he have treated his least favorite children and wives if this is how he treated his, his favorites? Um, after he had that happen, he, would, he was known to wander through his palace and cry out for her and say to his servants, fetch her. And if they didn't fetch her, which of course, they didn't because she was dead. He would have them beaten. His last order was to command his troops to arrest thousands of notable people throughout the, the region and to sequester them in the stadium in Jericho. And then, and he was failing at this point, and his order was, when I die, murder them all. That way, there will be weeping in the surrounding region because he knew that nobody's going to weep for me when I die. So he at least wanted there to be some weeping for somebody. Uh, selfish, egotistical, brutal, brilliant man. And this is the world that Jesus, again, chose to be born into. Our Lord and Savior, who came from, imagine the nicest property, the nicest home, the nicest palatial estate you've ever seen in a book or in real life or imagined. That's, it's an ash heap. It's a dung hill compared to where Christ came from to what he had at his right hand as the only son of God the Father who made everything we see 
And even this stuff, this image grandeur is broken. He made it all perfect by speaking. He came from heaven, from absolute wealth and privilege, and chose to be born poor, and chose to be born into a political realm that was extremely unstable and threatened his own life. He chose to be born into darkness, evil, dirt, and brokenness. Um, and if, that's, if that resonates with you, if, that, if you feel like, man, that's where I am, or if you don't feel like that, you will at some point fairly soon, you continue to live in this life because it's a broken, dark place. Be encouraged because you have a Savior who has come for you who knows exactly where you are and cares deeply, deeply, deeply. So I want to start just by talking a little bit in this text about the, again, arranging, sorry, the cosmic significance of this king. I want to look at the cosmic significance of Christ. Another thing Robin told me is don't drink water in the middle of a sentence. Pause. Man, I didn't know I did that, but you're right. Um, okay, so the cosmic significance of this king, Jesus. Um, I want to talk first under this heading about this, the star. What the heck was that thing, right? The star. Now, I don't know, but I know that there's good astronomical evidence for something that could have well been exactly what's recorded here by Matthew. So in 3 and then on into 2 BC, the king planet, anyone? Any astronomical geeks? Okay, Jupiter. The king planet coincided with the king's star. In Latin, um, Regulus and the Babylonians called it Sharu. They both, they both called it the king's star. So all throughout the Middle East, it was known as the king's star. So the king planet and the king's star coincided right at this time between at 3 and then on into 2 BC, um, they were within the constellation Leo. Any Latin readers or speakers? King, or lion, sorry. <laughs> lion, and Christ came from the tribe of Judah, which is um, the tribe of the lion. He was known as the lion of Judah. Uh, the Messiah was, and then Christ, as he, be, as he was born as Messiah, was, was called out later in the, in the New Testament. Um, and then rising up into that... Uh, that lion constellation was the constellation, the virgin constellation, Virgo, um, rising in the east behind Leo at, with the confluence of king planet, Jupiter, and king star, Regulus or Sharu. Um, nine months after that, so pause here, nine months later, some other things with these astronomical, these, these starry um, bodies were happening. So if you thought, if you kind of, we kind of have to dismiss some of the nativity scene in the front lawn or, you know, the camels and the baby Jesus and the kids dressed up, some of the misconceptions we have that come along with just the over-familiarity of what we think we know about how Christ was born. So the, the wise men come up with the shepherds and they're all singing around, around the straw. That's probably not how it happened. If you notice in the text, if you were paying attention, it said that they came to a house, oikos in the Greek. Um, the, the wise men, the magi came from the east, possibly Arabia, but probably from Persia or Babylonia a house. They came to Bethlehem and they found Jesus not in, a, not in a stable anymore. It had been some time, anywhere between nine months and probably not quite as much as two years, but about a year probably. Um, and they were still there in Bethlehem. And um, nine months after what I just described in the heavens, Jupiter, the king planet again, uh, joined with Venus. And if you've seen Jupiter and Venus, the planets in the sky, 
they're the two brightest things in the night sky. Um, they don't blink, they're planets. Uh, the ancients call them wandering stars because they, unlike stars, they'll wander across the sky in their orbits. Um, so Jupiter and Venus, uh, the mother planet, so the king planet and the mother planet coincided to make the brightest star anyone had seen. Three months after that, in December um, of 2 BC, at the end of that year, Jupiter would have appeared nightly just over the horizon, just over the horizon every night. Um, and it would have been in the south, because if you look at verse 9, it says that the wise men were led by this star, and the word there is something, you know, some astronomical object in the heavens that's bright. So just because it's not necessarily a star, or not just a star, doesn't mean the text is wrong, okay? Um, it would have led them from Jerusalem, where they asked Herod and all the scribes and the learned men, what does this mean? We see that this, this king of the Jews has been born, where, where is he? And they say, oh, everybody knows that, and I'll return to this. Uh, he was born in Bethlehem, just like the Old Testament uh, minor prophet Micah in five, Micah 5.2 says. He, the Messiah will be born in this tiny village. So tiny village, don't think you're tiny anymore. Messiah is going to be born. Every Jew knew that. So Bethlehem was just south of Jerusalem, still is. And it says, verse 9 says that the star led them to, from Jerusalem to that place. And so it's interesting that Jupiter would have been just in the south, just over the horizon at that time when they would have been coming. Um, and on Dece December 25th of 2 BC, uh, Jupiter entered what's called, I'm not going to get into it, retrograde. Because of our orbit and because of Jupiter's orbit, it entered retrograde where it literally stopped. It reached full stop in its travel through the fixed stars. Um, and it, verse 9 says it stopped over the place where Jesus was. It would have stopped right there. And then they enter the house, find Jesus, and hit the deck and worship and give him gifts. Um, it also says that in verse 2, if you look at verse 2, what do they come and tell Herod? They say, look, we saw his star. And the Greek says, we saw his star rising in the east. And we think about this in astronomical terms, yes, but we also think about it in terms that are loaded by the scriptures, by the Old Testament that has come before, that is, as Tom, I think, was saying, has prophet or Jackie, it's prophesied, the Old Testament has prophesied the coming of Messiah to save us and to save creation from our brokenness and from our sin. That's what Jesus has come for. And this, in that context of the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah, it says, we saw his star rising in the east. Um, the, the, the direction of orientation in the ancient Near East wasn't north, like it tends to be for us. It was east. Any guesses why? Because that's where the sun rises, right? And all life and all heat and all warmth and everything we need for survival comes from the east. It comes up from the east. And so the, the direction of orientation for a Middle Easterner was, and probably still is, east. And so the north is on my left. The south is on my right. So the word in Hebrew for south is also the word for right. Okay, this is your orientation. You're facing east. And so to have this his star rise in the east speaks of a new day. And it also, the east was the direction of the temple where God was approached. God and man come together in peace through the eastern gate alone. And there's tons of symbolism in the Old Testament for um, even back in Eden, how they left, the, our first parents sinned and broke covenant with God and were banished east out of the temple garden. And our re-entry into presence with God has to come by way of the east. And Matthew has already basically started by saying, look, this, 
this Messiah that's been born is going to start a completely new day. He's going to start something absolutely new. He's going to start the remaking of creation. He's going to bring us not just peace from Roman domination. He's going to bring us a far greater peace that we need, which is peace from our brokenness and our rebellion and our sin and our shame, as Nathaniel mentioned earlier, or someone so aptly mentioned, and from our despair and from our debt that we have accrued against God. He's going to, he's going to slay a far more insidious and profound enemy. Um, and he's going to defeat Satan and death and hell in our place. So um, the fact that his star was rising in the east meant a whole new day is coming. Um, Matthew, I just mentioned him, but basically I didn't mention this in my sermon, first sermon two weeks ago on Matthew's genealogy, but you remember how he starts the book? He says, um, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, and then he goes on. Um, that, that verse actually says in the Greek, yes, the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But the word there in the Greek is Genesis. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Not that the Son of God had a beginning, but that he did have a beginning as a man. And as a man, he came to represent us in his life, lived perfectly in our place, and in his death. Died horrifically on a cross to pay for the debt that we never could pay, that we owe. He paid it for us. It's a, his birth is the beginning. It's a new Genesis. Again, thinking back, Matthew isn't writing into a void. He's writing into the fullness of the Old Testament scriptures. Think about where the Old Testament scriptures start. Genesis, creation. A new creation has come. Even the stars are signaling it. Everything is shouting. Nothing is the same anymore. Here he is. Wonderful stuff. So that's the star. And then the scripture um, also speaks to the cosmic significance of his coming. Um, in short, I mean, even this text is full of Old Testament scripture. I'm just going to mention one. If you look in, I believe it's, yeah, Matthew 2, 13 through 15. Uh, Matthew quotes this minor prophet, Hosea, and he says something really interesting. He says that, okay, Herod, when he found out that the wise men had tricked him and he couldn't kill this baby who was born king, whom even the stars were talking about. I mean, who has, a, who has their own star? Jesus did. This, this king is something really, really special. Um, the stars are even calling out about his birth. So Herod is jealous. He's killed lot, even his own sons and wife because of, he's questioned their political loyalty. So he's out to get this guy. He, does not, he brooks no rival to his throne. So he kills anyone in the vicinity of how old Jesus could have been. So that's why we guess he, he killed people in the vicinity of uh, Bethlehem that were baby boys, two and under. So we're guessing Jesus was probably around one, certainly no, no older than two. Um, so he, he, just like Pharaoh did um, when Israel was getting too big in Egypt, he kills all these baby boys. And um, Joseph is warned in a dream to flee, to flee the scene with Jesus and to go to Egypt. And again, think about what Jesus was born into. He could have chosen to be born into somewhere pastel, and sterile and safe. He didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. Um, so that he could carry our burdens and identify with us and take our sins up into himself. That's why he came. But so Joseph and Jesus and Mary uh, fled to Egypt from the murderous Herod. And Matthew says something really interesting. He says, this was to fulfill what Hosea in Hosea 11.1 1 said, out of Egypt have I called my son. Okay, now head cocked. Think about that for a second. Drink. 
what's weird about that? What's weird about that is that Hosea isn't talking about Jesus. He's not even talking about Messiah, ostensibly. Hosea is talking about Israel. God in Exodus 4 and elsewhere through the Old Testament had called the nation of Israel my son, whom I love. Israel is my, my firstborn even, my son, whom I love. And when he's talking about, Hosea is kind of remembering back to that history, the, the history of the Exodus. And he says, yes, remember when God called Israel out of Egypt through the hand of Moses, through the leadership of Moses, he led them as a slave people out of the most powerful nation in the world, single-handedly, through the ten plagues, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, and eventually into the promised land. He's not talking about Messiah. He's talking about Israel. And Matthew says, actually, no, he was, but only secondarily. Primarily, that text is talking about Messiah, about Jesus, because Jesus is the one who, who fulfills it. Israel wasn't the true son that obeyed God from the heart. Nobody so far has been able to do that, to, to do what God asked of them. Jesus is the true son. He's the true Israel who must go down to Egypt in order to fulfill the scripture. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Um, and the other thing is that Hosea, he's not only is he not talking about Messiah here, he's talking about Israel, he's also not predicting anything. He's just looking back and saying, um, I remember when that happened? Remember when God did that plague thing and pulled Israel, the slave nation, out of Egypt, out of the most powerful nation in the world? That was amazing. That's part of their history. That's, that's the, the spectacular event whereby God saved his people with a mighty hand and delivered them into a garden land. And Matthew is saying, no, no. Um, it was predicting Jesus is coming. Jesus is the actual fulfillment of that. Not only is he saying, he goes beyond predicting, not only does this text predict Jesus, but actually the whole event of the Exodus prefigures Christ. All of space and time and history was designed by God in such a way as to point to his son, Jesus Christ. So it's more than just, hey, this Bible is a prophecy or a prediction. It's that it was, it's space and time are a prefiguring to announce. Everything is arranged. Every molecule, every happening, everything is arranged for the coming of Messiah. The stars cried out. Um, the scriptures cried out. Space and time, all of it is ordered in order to get us ready for this new day, for this coming of Messiah. Reggie Kidd says this. Um, he writes, Jesus is the obedient and faithful son Israel was supposed to have been. Thus his life, especially the early events, are a telling of Israel's Exodus story. Miraculous birth, just like Israel, born of a people that were way too old to have a kid, right? Miraculous birth, rescue from the plot. So start even with Genesis, the new Genesis, okay? And then um, the son of Abraham, and then miraculous birth, uh, rescue from the plot of an evil king, Herod, paralleling Pharaoh, um, sojourn uh, to and calling out of Egypt, just like Israel. And rather than, rather than um, Matthew saying, yeah, um, it happened with Israel, and then, and then it happened just the same way with Jesus. What a coincidence, or whatever. He said, no, it happened with Israel in the first place because God was preparing everything for the coming of his son. Everything. Absolutely amazing. And here's the thing. Um, 
if Jesus is the, a spoke in the wheel of your life, he's, if he's a piece of the pie that is your life, Sundays, I go to church, sometimes, whatever. This is crying out against that kind of posture. Like, crucify this man or bow like the wise men did and call him Lord and Savior. The stars say that he is king. All of space and time says this is a new day. They were ordered for the coming of this king. If we don't order our lives, there's no half allegiance. Even Jesus said we must hate father and mother in order to follow him. Anyone who doesn't take up my cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who, who says I have something else to do and let me come but doesn't, who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back to follow me is not worthy of me. Okay? If this is true, if this is half true about who this king is, then we owe him everything. We ought to order our time, our energy, our affections, the way we go about living our life, the, the reason that we see ourselves as being here, everything ought to fall into place according to and based on the fact that this king is God in the flesh, born to save us from a far greater evil than Herod, from the resident evil, from our sin and from its payment, which is death and hell. Um, and really the second point, following on the cosmic significance of the kingship, which is much, much shorter, is just that it's ironic that even though this is the case, even though um, the, the birth of Christ has a, speaks to the cosmic significance of his kingship, it's easy to miss him. It's easy to miss him. Because he was born in the cor corner of the world and because of why he came. Um, so think about the fact that, I mean, he could have chose to be born so that in such a way that everybody would have noticed him. He didn't. He was born in a really, really tiny country that was the, basically the, the servant state, at least, of a much more powerful nation. Um, in sort of the crossroads of the Middle East, um, very, very tiny. I mean, I remember George Bush, uh, uh, George W., uh, Herbert Walker, or Walker Bush, um, said he, when he visited Israel for the first time, he said, man, we have driveways longer like he went to the Gaza Strip, it's like we have driveways in Texas longer than this is wide. You know, like it's a tiny sliver of a piece on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, even in the Middle East. Um, War-torn, very vulnerable. Jesus was born into Israel. Then in Israel, he was born into a tiny hamlet, not even a notable place in Israel, south of Jerusalem. A, a, no, a nothing town that the prophet Micah said, you're nothing, but you're not nothing, because guess what? Messiah is going to be born from you, the city of David, where David came from. And then from that, where does he go from Egypt? Joseph has another dream and realizes, okay, Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, is now in charge. And if we go back to where we were, we might, Jesus might be in danger again. So, so the Holy Spirit told him, go up and live in the hills up near Galilee, where Israelites really don't hang out too much. It'd be like, move to West Virginia, country, get a corncob pipe, hang out on the front porch. That would be the equivalent. So Jesus probably grew up, I mean, almost certainly he... And his Galilean fishermen friends, they had these accents. They were like from the sticks. So in Jerusalem, in the cosmopolitan Jerusalem, nobody respected that. It's like, what are you? Really? How does this guy know so much? He's from the sticks. He didn't have an education to boot. Um, so he, was, he chose to be born poor and to live poor in a corner of the world. 
and to come for the poor. And it's really, the reason it's so easy to overlook him is that it's really only when you realize not just poor materially, but poor in spirit. Like Matthew says, Luke trans, uh, translates that as poor. Jesus, blessed are the poor. Jesus came for the poor. In Matthew 11, verse 5, I, I believe it is, John the Baptist says, hey, are you the Messiah? And what does Jesus answer? He says, hey, you tell John people that are blind are getting their eyes open. People that are lame are getting healed. People that are dead are getting raised to life. And what? I'm preaching the good news to fill in the blank. Everyone. No. If I could have written it, that's what I would have written. That's what I would have expect, expected. He didn't say to everyone. He said, I'm preaching the good news. The poor have the good news preached to them. Didn't everyone? Yes. But it was only good news to the poor. Not just to those that didn't have a lot, but it's the poor that realize I am in desperate need of someone else to save me. Because you and I convince ourselves through our resources that most of the time we can do it. I can get there tomorrow. Tomorrow, that magical land where everything's going to happen right. You know, I mean, no. The whole reason, the thing that Jesus is coming tells us is you're in desperate straits. I would not send my only son to be crucified, to live a life of rejection and poverty if there were any other way for us to save ourselves. That's the difference between any religion or world philosophy and Christianity, as was said so beautifully at the Advent lighting and, and other times in this gathering. Every other religion is a ladder to God, doing a bunch of good stuff, scrubbing myself clean. The gospel is God came down and did it for us. Live the life that we should be living of obedience to God from his heart out of pure pleasure and died the death he didn't deserve that we deserve on the cross in our place. Came down and did it for us. He wouldn't have done that if there was another way, but he did. And I think the thing, the shining example of this in this text, the fact that it's so easy to miss him is when the wise men come from hundreds of miles away, essentially they've been like today, like the equivalent of Muslims, not not part of the true faith of Israel at all. Um, Persians or Astrians, perhaps, Babylonians, maybe Arabians, certainly not part of the people of God, but they're the ones who notice and come hundreds of miles to Jerusalem, the capital. Okay, where else are you going to go? I'm going to Jerusalem, then I'm going to find out who's this king. Y'all know about him, right? Born in Bethlehem. Tell us, what, what, what do they do? What is Herod and all the intelligentsia that he gathers that, that know, oh yeah, Messiah's born in Bethlehem. What do they do? Do they follow the wise men six miles south, downhill from Jerusalem to see this king that the stars are screaming about? Six miles, downhill. Downhill! No, they don't follow the wise men at all. They go about their business. Isn't that exactly? I mean, if that is not an indictment of my life so often, of our lives in this busy rat race of life where we have such a sense of self-importance and haste and busyness and Facebook and Twitter and I don't even know all the words and text and yada yada and it's just so fast and I whoa 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 the king that the stars have aligned for that all of history has aligned for and is spotlighting might be six miles downhill just go check him out it's the worst you've wasted half a day at the best your entire eternity not just life can be changed so easy to miss him. And who misses him? The establishment. Who's the establishment? We are. At the best, this is a warning. At the best, you will probably miss him. At the worst, it is just a huge indictment. Um, but he came for you, but he only, he only preaches to the poor. 
In other words, to those who realize, I can't do it. It's why you came. Surrender is all he requires. And that's what faith is. So I would encourage you in that regard. Um, so he's easy to miss, but he's easy to miss, um, yeah, because he came for the poor and he came to die. And I've really said that, and I'm really going to skip that. I'm just going to say one thing on that point, and then the last one, and we're done. But he came, he's easy to miss, in part because he was born into a corner of the world, but also in part because of the kind of king that he came to be, as I've mentioned some, and as most of you are familiar with. But the wise men's gifts really speak to this. So they bring gold. And by the way, another thing that is dismissed in your mind, it wasn't necessarily three wise men. It was three gifts. could have been 20. It's probably more. It's a caravan. It's probably more than three. Anyway, just kind of blow out the walls of your sort of tame, nice, cozy, hot cocoa in both my hands um, picture of what happened. Like, it was gnarly, all right? So we had a bunch of wise men. Who knows how many bring three gifts, and they hit the floor when they saw them because they knew this is the one creation is screaming about. They brought gold, which speaks to his kingly status, kind of king you've never seen before. Didn't come for political ruler dominion. Uh, they brought frankincense which was something that the priests used daily in the temple. The temple is the place where God and man meet in peace. The priests are the ones who officiate that. And the way that we meet in peace with God, we are guilty, God can't look on our sin, is an innocent thing has to die in our place. Something that doesn't deserve punishment dies so that we can be looked on as innocent. Jesus, through that gift of frankincense, was forecast as this is why he came. to bring a, He came from heaven to bring heaven down to bring us into God's presence through his life for us and through his death for us and through his resurrection which conquered death. And finally, myrrh. It's something that's used to embalm the dead. It's also that something that's used, I believe, as a painkiller. It was used in the actual world as a painkiller to deaden the senses. Um, and Jesus was actually offered myrrh or something like it on the cross and he refused it. There's that great scene in Braveheart where William Wallace spits out the thing that's going to deaden the pain because he wants to be fully there. Jesus did something similar. And this spoke to the fact that he was a king who came on a mission, what, to subjugate all of us under his boot, to lay his life down, to die. His mission, and Matthew will pound the way at this over and over again, his mission is one, to die in our place, to live a life of pleasure and full obedience to the Father, something we had never done, something Israel never did. The true Israel came, the, the second Adam, the true Israel the new beginning came and did it in our place. And then he died and took our sins into himself, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became our sin to pay the price for them. Um, and finally, so that's why it's easy to miss him. But finally, Jesus was born into our mess. And I've already said this, so it's a short point, but I wanted to recap and just say, just to remind my, my heart and your heart, he chose to be born this way. I didn't choose to be born in Texas women's in Houston into an upper middle class family. And my dad went to grad school. And my mom finished college. And I was born in the suburbs. That was nice. I didn't choose that. I was given that. Jesus chose this life of poverty. Refugee on the run to Egypt. People after him. Rejected by people that he created. Can you imagine? Crucified. Jesus chose that. So that whatever you're going through right now, he knows it and he knows it more. He went deeper. He went darker. He went as far down as you can go. Even if you choose 
to try to do this thing called life yourself and try to scrub yourself up before God yourself, you will fail. If you choose not to be hidden in Christ, you will stand before God and have to answer for what you've done, and you will fail. You will fail the judgment. I don't want you to do that. If you do that and you are separated from him forever under his righteous judgment in a place called hell that Jesus talked about more than he talked about heaven, a place of regret and of misery, you will still not know how much, how deep Jesus went because he took hell and perfect punishment for each and every person that he came to save. Can you imagine that? Composite, eternal suffering. And he invites you in to say, let me pay that for you. I came for you. I have your name written on my chest as I go before God the Father. Stop trying to do it yourself. Come and rest in me. Wherever you are in life right now, whatever darkness you are seeing, whatever misery, whatever hopelessness, whatever despair, he feels it. He knows it. He is with you. He's that kind of Savior. He's that kind of King. Um, There's this wonderful, and I close with this, Lord of the Rings. Surprise, surprise. Um, There's this wonderful scene. Jordan and I are going to start reading Lord of the Rings in January. We're going to take the real-time 13-month journey through Middle-earth together, and there will be much pipage and much weed from the south farthing. Pipe, weed. Okay, that that could have been. Um, The the hobbits call their pipe tobacco pipe weed. Um, and, And much jubilation. But if you want to join any of you, any of you men out there, I raise a glass to you. Um, we, okay, at the end of Lord of the Rings, toward the end, Sam, Frodo, the two main characters, they're in Mordor. They're at the darkest. They're at the, the bottom. They're at the end. They, they hardly have a leg to stand on. They are exhausted after however, almost a year of traveling. And they're in Mordor, this volcanic, ashen, dark, and evil place. And they've almost lost hope. And they're heading to try to throw this ring into this orodrin, the, the mountain of fire where it was forged. Throw it into the fire from whence it came. And um, Sam is, he's about, he's about done. And he looked, there's this beautiful moment. It's not in the movie. Not in the movie. It's this crystalline prose. He looks up. He's essentially carrying Frodo on his back. He looks up in this wasteland, and he sees this high white star far above all the misery, far above all the evil, and it's just perfect. And it clearly knows nothing, nothing of all the brokenness that evil has caused. And it's this beautiful thing, and he's he's so encouraged that at least I know if all this goes to pot and we all die, beauty exists. It's real. And it's going to win. It's going to win. There's something that has not been touched. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that that beauty could have chosen to stay up there. But he didn't. He came down and got dirty, filthy with our sin. Became our sin. Took it into himself. Buried it. And rose from the dead. A new day. Jesus is not an accessory. He's either the king of everything or crucify him. Make your choice. I hope you will choose the former. And I'm glad that you're here. Let me pray. 
Lord, I thank you for uh, the unspeakable things that you've done for us. And I thank you that they're not unspeakable in that we get to speak about them. We get to talk about them. We get to revel over them and rejoice in them, especially at this time of year. I just pray that the joy of Christmas, not Santa Claus and his elves, I'm all for Santa, but, and not all the gifts that we get, but Jesus, the most life-changing gift, he would consume our imaginations and our thoughts and our affections and our wills this Christmas. We give ourselves to you, and I pray that you would continue to do your work, holy God, in Jesus' name.